Welcome to the Higher Potential Living Podcast, where we discuss improving quality of life by exploring mind, body, and spirit through a mindful lens. Here's your host, Jason Marichello. Hello, and thanks for joining me. On today's episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Shauna Percy. Shauna is a certified Safe Talk, Assist, and Ask, which is Assessing for Suicide and Kids trainer. Shauna also specializes in developing custom workshops uh, in regards to mental health and suicide training. Her lived experience as a suicide interventionist, as well as her experience with suicide bereavement and resilience through trauma, all came together to make a pretty great episode today. We talked about breaking down some of the stigmas in this field. Um, We talked about ways that we can provide support for those who are in our community and sometimes ways that we can ask for support from others as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode and hopefully we can start to make some changes together in this field. Hello, everyone, and Shauna, it's it's great to have you here. I was thinking about you know the conversations that we've had one on one, and the work that I know that you do instantly came to the foreground of my mind when thinking about mental health. So I'm excited to kind of jump into it. But before we do, I was hoping you could just kind of introduce yourself a little bit and maybe tell people a little bit about you know where your passion comes from with all of this. Sure. Well, th- thanks for having me on. Um, So a little bit about myself, I run an organization called LifeVoice, LifeVoice.ca, and we all have our leanings towards something. Mine happens to be towards suicide prevention and trauma, and I came to that through real-life experience. My first husband, about 10 years ago, had ended his life after many, many battles with trauma and addictions. And at the time, even though I knew he was at very high risk, I had no idea how to support him. And unfortunately, it wasn't until after he had died that I took some courses and I learned some evidence-based tools for how to come alongside someone who's experiencing thoughts of suicide. And it absolutely changed the trajectory of my life. And so now that's, that's, the, the main thing that I spend 90% of my time focusing on, I'm also a TEDxUW speaker, a published author, and a certified trainer of programs like ASSIST, Mental Health First Aid, Compassion Fatigue, and other programs. That's a, that's a lot to take in there, but the thing that really stood out for me, I know with um, the limited amount that I do know about trauma, is how when we go through these hard times in our lives, a lot of times people either enter into the manifestation of that fight or flight. And sometimes when we go through something like you just described, it's so, we see it quite often where we kind of retreat back and we don't know how to deal with it. And it sounds like you really, like I'm sure it was a process, but I think it's beautiful how you came to this point of this happened to me, this is what I've been through. And now I really see the need more than ever to start to make some changes here. So what kind of did you, what, what was the, the main topic of your book itself? Was it about your journey or was it about just the, the stigma and all that around all of it? So actually with the book that I wrote, that was written after my first husband had attempted suicide, not died by suicide. Mm. And again, I, it was at a period in my life where I had no idea what to do with what was happening in our life. He also experienced psychosis, which does not always intersect with suicide, but in his case, it did. And part of my healing journey was to write my way through everything that I was experiencing. And I was very privileged in the sense that he allowed me to take those things that I had written and share it with other people. And as I did that, as we did that together, we both started to see that it seemed to better equip others to know how to come alongside each of us with what we were individually struggling with. And so it wasn't actually published until after he died, but it is really comforting for me to know that it was published with his permission. It was something that he recognized had value to go out into the world. And I think that speaks to how powerful it is that when we, in a trauma-informed way, 
talk about topics like suicide, about our mental health issues, which we all have. We all have mental health and it Mm. fluctuates just like our physical health. That when we bring those things out into the open, like Maya Angelou says, we may find that we actually have more alike than we do. We're more alike than we are unalike. Mm -hmm. And I've found that to be true in my life. And I've also found that when I'm open and honest about what I'm going through and what I need, it also tends to help those who want to help me know how to come alongside me instead of having to do guesswork or in worst case scenario, not engaging with me or other people who need help at all simply because they don't know where to start or what to do. So I can help others help me Mm -hmm. by being open. Yeah. Yeah, it's so powerful. And one of the things that, uh, again, that stood out there was that we have so much more in common when we're actually in that place where we can start to talk about it and start to Mm -hmm. feel comfortable connecting where so often we just feel isolated because we just make these assumptions and you know this is my own little tangent but you know you look at social media and everything where we're posting all of the times we're on vacation having fun we're posting the pictures of us smiling we're posting all of this kind of stuff we're not posting the arguments that we're having with our our spouse or you know the frustrations that we're having with our kids and all this kind of stuff So then we start Mm -hmm. to look around us and see all of my friends are smiling and I'm the only one here crying myself to sleep or, or something like that. And Mm -hmm. yet when I, so a lot of this came to my mind when I took the assist program, which uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about some of these programs, but when I took the, the assist program to talk about suicide intervention, one of the first things that they did was a little poll and everyone just anonymously went up to a sheet of paper and Mm -hmm. checked if you have either had suicidal thoughts or know people who have suicided or, you know, all these different, um, all these different inquiries. And then standing back at the end of it and looking at here's a room of 20 people and like 90% mm-hmm. of the people in that room, this is their reality. This is something that they're dealing with. But yes. we, we assume the numbers are so much smaller. So with the work mm-hmm. that you do, like how, how prevalent do you see that? Like, do you see a lot of that shame around even coming to, talk to you or secrecy and all that? Yes and no. I think I have a very different experience than most people because I'm so public with the things that I've experienced, again, in a trauma-informed way, but not just by being bereaved by suicide and naming that my loved one died by suicide, where I've been in in bereavement groups where we've all been bereaved by suicide and it it Mm. hasn't been until people have entered that group that for many of them, it's been the first time that they've said out loud that their loved one died by suicide. Mm -hmm. So this is a known about me, but another known about me is I'm also very open that from time to time I've experienced thoughts of suicide. Mm -hmm. And I think that normalization and, and this understanding that when someone is having thoughts of suicide, it's not that they want to die, but it's that they're in some kind of pain or experiencing Mm -hmm. loss and they're not sure what to do with it. And their brain is telling them that they want to die, but actually they, they want this pain that they're in to end. Um, And because I'm so public with that, I've had a lot of people come to me with their conversations around suicide that they've never shared with anyone else. So this is part of suicide prevention, actually, just how we speak about suicide in general Mm -hmm. lets people know who are experiencing thoughts of suicide or bereaved by suicide or know someone who is struggling with thoughts of suicide. It lets them know that we're individuals that they can come to and talk about this. Mm -hmm. So thankfully, I haven't experienced a lot of shame or people who have been feeling shame when they talk to me about suicide. And at the same time, I know that shame is a very significant barrier. I hear those stories, even though I don't experience them firsthand. Mm -hmm. I understand that shame is a barrier when we learn things like someone's loved one died by suicide two decades ago, and they've never told another living human being that their loved one died by suicide. That's about shame. Mm -hmm. And I think another, um, misnomer is like you said about people not understanding how prevalent thoughts of suicide are one of the things that i do in the assist workshop which for those who don't know assist stands for applied suicide intervention skills training 
So it's two full days where we take people through an evidence-based model and anyone 16 years of age and older can learn how to do a suicide intervention. And one of the things that I would do with the, the responses that we would get from that poll and to make a connection between our mental health and suicide intervention versus a physical first aid intervention mm -hmm. is we would look at the responses that would come back from the participants and often the individuals in the room, it would be between 80 to 100% of individuals in the room had either known someone who experienced thoughts of suicide, maybe they did themselves, maybe they were bereaved by suicide, and then I would ask them, raise your hands if you've taken a program like ASSIST before, where you have suicide first aid skills. Mm -hmm. And it's very rare that any hands will go up in the room. And then I'll ask them, raise your hands if any of you have taken some kind of physical first aid course, like CPR or the full two days. And often, almost every hand will go up in the room. And then I'll ask them, how many of you here have applied your physical first aid skills in doing something more than just putting a Band-Aid on someone? And often, unless I'm training first responders, there are very few hands that go up in the room. Mm -hmm. So we really see this dichotomy between emphasizing physical first aid training, but then not a lot of people using it or mm -hmm. needing to use it. And then not emphasizing suicide first aid training or people being held back from that because of the shame that surrounds the topic. And yet the majority of people in some way have been impacted by this topic of suicide. So there's something very off in how we're, we're looking at this topic as a society. And that's part of where I get really passionate and we're going to change this together mm -hmm. one person at a time. This is something we can shift. Yeah, for sure. And I can, I can speak into that as well. So I like to be quite open with a lot of these different stigmas that um, we have around all mm -hmm. kinds of things. I just like to kind of, yep. you know, um, stir the pot a little bit as, as it were. <laughs> so I'll speak openly about um, sexual issues within relationships and mental health and all this kind of stuff. And it's true. When you do that, you are planting a seed that, oh, okay, if I'm having an issue, this person is a safe person to go to to start to talk about this. Yeah. So on a similar note, I've noticed that even with the conversations around suicide, that people who directly have been in contact with me, they'll start to feel comfortable to talk to me about it. But kind of like you alluded to, I find with specific, with specific either lifestyles, sometimes um, religious beliefs or certain uh, careers, that there's a little bit more shame. So I've had, so my, my studio is in Orangeville. I've worked mm -hmm. with a number of first responders directly, like one-on-one, -on -one, um, but typically never from my, my own town. So I'll get people coming from Brampton right. who don't want to be identified. They're worried about someone recognizing them walking through the door to go yeah. in and speak to someone. Yeah. And I remember when I did my assist training, one of the big eye-openers for me around how impactful this could be is I was all like, I was super jazzed up about, you know, breaking down some of the stigma and, and opening and talking about all this more. Because myself, I had dealt with uh, thoughts of suicide. And, and like you said, mm. it, for me, it just came down to, I don't know what my options are to deal with this pain right now. And yeah. that is one of the options, like the, all the other ideas of accepting myself and loving myself and talking to someone, those actually seemed like way harder options at that time. And so that's mm. where that thought came from. And it wasn't until I was able to start to bring myself to realize, okay, there are other options here that I can take, that it became almost like the motivation I needed to make changes in my life. But when I came back from day one of the assist training, I was just like, people that I was interacting with, just like, hey, any thoughts of suicide today? Hey, how you doing? Any thoughts of suicide today? <laughs> and people are looking at me like I was crazy. Um, not to throw that word around loosely, but uh, literally looking at me like, what's going on with this person? We don't talk about these things. And then mm. day two came along and uh, I was interacting with a close friend of mine. I did the same thing. And I said, hey, any thoughts of suicide today? And I could see them physically, their shoulders just like drop. And then mm -hmm. turned to me and then all of a sudden, all like the kidding that I was doing went, went by the wayside. And he just said, you know, mm -hmm. today, no, today I feel, I feel good today. I feel okay. Mm -hmm. But if you had asked me that last week, 
that would have been a totally different story. And just by me yeah. lightheartedly talking about it like that, it was like, you know what? He took the, the risk in a way and said, I'm ready to have this conversation. And we had an amazing conversation. He was someone that I thought was a very close uh, friend of mine that if they were having these kinds of thoughts, of course they would know that they could come to me about it. But it took for me to say those words for them to actually mm-hmm. feel like, okay, yes, I'm ready to take that kind of step. And that was yeah. such a powerful moment. Absolutely. I think this is a really important point because there are many people who it's not until after someone has engaged in a suicide behavior or died by suicide that those who are left behind are left grappling with why didn't they talk to me and I thought that we were so close and how could I not have known what they were going through and sometimes that's a reflection on how we've talked about suicide but often it's a reflection on that there can be safety and anonymity And I often say to people, don't be surprised if you end up having a more intimate conversation with a total stranger and they're pouring out their life story to you, but the person that you think you're the closest to, they're holding their cards really close. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason for that can be this fear of if you really knew what I was thinking, or if you really knew what I was going through, or if you really knew where I landed on this subject, is it going to change the relationship between us? And the relationship between us is so vital to me right now. I don't know if I can take that risk. Mm -hmm. But if I share this with a total stranger and they look at me differently, that's maybe a risk that I can take. And then there are other people who we are really close to and they will open up to us. So we're not always going to be the right support for everybody. And for Mm -hmm. others, we will be. And this is also why it's so important to understand what resources are out there. We could be a resource, crisis lines like Crisis Service Canada, Kids Help Phone, Boots on the Ground for First Responders. Those are all resources that people can call and stay anonymous and say the things that they need to say Mm -hmm. without feeling like they're going to shift their relationship with their loved ones in some way. But we as supporters also need to do work just in our day-to-day, how are we talking about this topic? And I love, too, what you said about, you know, just flat out saying, any thoughts of suicide today? So how we ask the question is also really important. Mm -hmm. And will also often determine what response we get. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if somebody says, so I'm going to ask you this really uncomfortable question. Right. (laughs) What we're really saying is, I'm uncomfortable with this Mm -hmm. question I'm about to ask you. So what response are we likely to get? Mm -hmm. Or if we say something like, are you thinking about doing something stupid or silly? We're saying that suicide, even to have the thought of suicide, is stupid or silly. So we want to ask in the most neutral way possible, just, are you thinking about suicide? Are you thinking about killing yourself? Mm Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a a non-judgmental question that we're asking. And the more comfortable we are when we ask it, the more comfortable that person will hopefully be in talking to us about their potential thoughts of suicide. Yeah, that's so powerful. I love the way that you even bring it to the the foreground that like, have you had stupid thoughts or, and like just how Mm -hmm. powerful these words are. And and our intentions may be totally pure in that moment. It may be like, I really do want to help you, but mm-hmm. just not recognizing the power of the words that we're using on that situation. Exactly. And yeah. then again, like you say, being okay with the idea that maybe I'm not the best one to offer help, or maybe they do say something to it. Maybe it's a child. I've had people you know, talk to me about their children saying that they have thoughts of suicide and all this kind of stuff, but their children not wanting to really go much further than that with their parents and all this. Yeah. Maybe it's this idea that I don't want them to worry more or something. And as parents recognizing that it's not something personal, that the best thing we can do in that moment is to, is to be aware of the resources and everything. So Mm -hmm. I guess one of my other questions is then as a friend, as someone that wants to support, what are some of the different ways that support kind of manifests in these, in these situations? Mm -hmm. I think empathy is always helpful. 
in addition to empathy, trying to put ourselves in someone else's shoes before we even start the conversation is to ask as directly and caring as possible about suicide. Another thing that I would encourage people to do as someone who does suicide interventions, and this is something that I've learned along the way, but also something that personal thoughts of suicide has taught me, is that in addition to asking people, are you thinking about suicide? I always follow that up with a second question, which is, is it that you really wanna die or is it that you want the pain to end? Mm -hmm. And so far, not to say that it can't be different, but out of dozens of interventions that I've done so far, there has not been one person who has realized that there's a difference between those two things mm -hmm. until I've asked the question. And then when they've taken pause, to really think about what is it that they want. Every single response so far has come back. It's not that I want to die. It's that I want the pain to end. Mm -hmm. So as a friend, as a supporter, that's one of the, the aha moments that we could be helping people make. Another thing that's really important that we talk about in suicide intervention is helping break things down really, really small. So in an intervention, whether it's with a friend, a stranger, anyone, we very rarely look beyond the next 24 hours. Mm -hmm. In fact, often when I'm coming alongside someone, regardless of who they are, it's looking at what can be done over the next hour, or do you think you can get through the next half an hour even? It's not uncommon that looking too far down the road is what is crushing this person. Mm -hmm. And so we want to help them put life back in the perspective of being manageable again. As a friend, and I think this piece is the hardest piece to do, we also want to be really, really careful not to hop into fix-it mode. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a real gift when we're not close to someone or the problems that they're tell telling us about are so big that we know that we can't touch them, so we don't even try Mm -hmm. Or we're not close to this person, and so we are better able to stay in the mode of just listening and not trying to fix. I've found personally that the closer someone is in my life, the harder it is for me to hold myself in check and just listen. But listening is part of the fix. Helping people feel seen and validated regardless of what it is that they're going through regardless of whether I think it's fixable or not, regardless of whether I think it's a big deal or not, hearing what this experience or this pain is like for them is life-saving. Mm -hmm. As a friend, I think it's also important to recognize when we stay in the conversation and when we maybe need to bring somebody else into it. Mm -hmm. I'll share with you that although I would say I'm fairly good at, and I, I love doing interventions. I often say it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it's mine. I feel like I get to walk on sacred ground with people to come into this space with them where they're so vulnerable and that's where courage shows up, you know, but I'm remarried and with my current husband, if he's struggling, even though I know better, even though I know what he really needs, what basic human need is, is for me to validate him and hear him out. So often I default into that fix it mode. I'm just like, for you, I have to make it better. For you, you can't be in this amount of pain. I just have to make it easier for you. And it gets to the point where sometimes he's like, Shauna, you, you got to stop. Like, I have to find somebody else to talk to because you're not hearing me. And I'm like, I know better. Mm -hmm. But he's just, we're so close that sometimes I really can't hold myself in check. And that's where I need to let go of the reins and be like, you know what? You're right. Maybe you do need someone else to talk to who can yeah. just hold this space for you and hear you out that's such a powerful lesson I've, I've been caught before like quoting the buddha or something to my wife and her just turning saying i'm going to throw something at you right now <laughs> I'm like okay no more yeah. buddha talk but yeah it's so true a lot of the times i use the analogy of in the fixing mentality it's like we see someone who in our eyes they're in the dark and we want to bring them to the light and it seems so simple like, let me just grab you and pull you into the light 
Whereas so often, all we want to do is just have someone to sit in the darkness with sometimes. It's yeah. like, maybe the dark won't seem so scary if there's some company there. Yeah. And just yeah. breaking down that feeling of being alone. And one of the big things that was really impactful as I went down the path of learning about trauma a little bit more and, and realizing how a lot of this kind of manifests was um, in the idea of how ruminating thoughts really feed into each other. So ruminating thoughts being these snowballing thoughts that are just kind of accumulating, accumulating into mm-hmm. digging us sometimes deeper into these states of depression is that often it's when we hear things like, oh, don't worry, it's going to get better. Or tomorrow's, you know, a new day, you're going to feel great tomorrow. <laughs> and then we wake up tomorrow and I don't feel any better. And now all of a sudden yeah. I'm frustrated because I was told that today is going to be a better day. And like, right. again, so often people are like, yeah, this is what you need to hear. You need to know that it's going to get better. Where I just want to know that what I'm experiencing is okay. Yeah, and it's, exactly. it's natural to just be in this for a little bit. And being accepting, we don't necessarily need to like it, but being accepting that this is what I'm experiencing sometimes can be such a powerful release in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, again, so often the frustration of not being better can lead us deeper down that rabbit hole sometimes. Yeah. I call this the melancholy song effect. And actually, my 11-year-old yesterday said to me, Mom, how come sometimes when I'm listening to really sad songs, I feel better? She's Mm. like, is that normal? And I'm like, that's totally normal. That's the melancholy song effect. And the reason why it can help us feel better is because even when we're listening to a song where we have no personal relationship with the artist, but to know that someone out there in the world Mm -hmm. understands what it's like to feel how we feel, is healing. There's something incredibly therapeutic to that. Mm -hmm. And so you're so right that it's not uncommon that the temptation is that when someone is feeling pain, we, we want to try to make it better for them by almost glossing over that pain and letting them know where we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Like it's going to be okay for you again. And and you're not going to be in this amount of pain forever. And, and don't worry, tomorrow will be better. But actually that can contribute to people feeling even more alone and being in even more pain than Mm -hmm. they were in before. But when we acknowledge the amount of pain, when we let them know that we, we see that we hear what they're going through and we say it back to them, it lets them know that, like you said, someone is willing to come and sit down with them and experience this with them. Not that we take what other people are going through and put that on our shoulders, Mm -hmm. but we're bearing witness to it. And that's incredibly powerful. Cannot underestimate that. (laughs) Yeah. You reminded me of the, like the bro breakup scenario when like your bro is just broken up with his girlfriend or something like, come on, man, you just need to forget her. We just need to take you out to the bar and you won't, you know, (laughs) all this kind of stuff instead of like being able to be vulnerable. And sometimes yeah, you know, I, I can only speak from uh, just some of the conditioning because I do men's gatherings and stuff like that. And sometimes it just men in particular, I find, don't know how to be able to not fix, especially mm-hmm. with other men. They can like let down some walls sometimes and like with their partners or something, sometimes say like, I want to hear you out. But so often that feels like, no, no, that's way too vulnerable. That's not what quote unquote being a man is about. We need to just get things fixed. And yeah. Again, what, what, um, what you're saying reminds me of is all that, uh, the theory around mirroring neurons and how like the best way to actually build rapport with somebody is mm-hmm. to establish that mirroring connection. So if, if you're feeling down and even, not that I'm saying that we want to manipulate each other in any way, shape or form, but even understanding how that mirroring aspect of our brain works, that we can slip into it a little bit more consciously and just saying like, okay, what you need to know is that pain is acceptable. So if you're frustrated about something and I come into it and I I had to catch myself, my background is in Buddhism and there's a lot of aspects around non-attachment there. And when I first started Mm -hmm. coaching people and they would come in with, you know, all their emotions that they would come in with. And I would be sitting there with my, you know, full Lotus legs uh, position and (laughs) Okay, so what we need to go through and all this is that there'd be a disconnect. There'd be a disconnect. Mm -hmm. Like this guy doesn't understand me. He doesn't understand the pain that I'm going through. 
So to all of a sudden switch that and recognize that for myself and say like, okay, this is, this is something that is healing in and of itself. It's be like, yeah, you know what? That does really suck. And like, we don't need to have the answer, but to say like, man, that sounds really hard. That sounds mm-hmm. like you're going through a lot right now. And I'm, I'm so impressed with, you know, the fact that you were even able to come into my office today with everything that you're going through. Yeah. It's just, I saw a night and day with my own just awareness of how, and that's why when you say trauma informed, coming at some of this from a bit more of a trauma informed place that we can be a little more aware even of how our actions impact other people. That's right. Yeah. In the assist program, they also talked about invitations. I think I'm remembering that right. It's been a while since I did that, but where it's like, the things that we, and this is again, where a little bit of um, training can come into play, where people are actually giving us so much more in the way of tells than we're even aware of. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that, because I remember that being quite powerful um, when I learned about that. Yeah, the bottom line I'd say for invitations is pay attention to any shifts in behavior Sometimes it's about certain things that people say that sound very final or like they're looking for some kind of escape or that acknowledge the amount of immense pain that people are in. But often when we're looking for those, like you said, those tells, I think some stereotypes play into what it is that we're looking for. So for example, we might be looking for depression, but depression and suicide don't always intersect, even though they often do. Not everyone who's experiencing depression also experiences thoughts of suicide and not everyone who experiences thoughts of suicide is depressed. Some other things might be heavy drinking or substance use or, getting upset at other people. So that may be more erratic behavior or inability in this moment to regulate moods, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But tells can also look like a shift to what seems like it's the better. Maybe a peace comes over someone. Maybe it seems like they're finally getting their life in order. Maybe it seems like they're happier than they've been in months. And that's often where maybe we've been concerned about someone and then we see those behavior shifts and we go, oh, it's all better now. Mm-hmm. And we back off. <laughs> We're like, okay, they're, they're, they found life again. They're okay again. And then sometimes suicide happens. Mm-hmm. So what those shifts in behavior are about is that it's not, again, that someone wants to suicide, but if in their mind they think that the suiciding is going to end their pain, sometimes that peace or that happiness or putting their life in order is about them feeling like this pain is going to end soon. I'm not going to have to be in this amount of pain anymore. Mm -hmm. So even when it seems like it's a shift to the better, we still want to dig in and find out what does this shift in behavior mean for this particular individual And we can also look at groups of people who, again, might be at higher risk of suiciding than others statistically. And when we look at who those groups of people are, you know, sometimes that's important information when it comes to decisions like, I've got some funding dollars, where am I going to put them? Well, are we seeing any patterns? Are there any particular communities where rates are higher, Mm -hmm. where these funding dollars can make a real difference? But when we're paying attention to those who we're interacting with in real life, we got to be really careful not to stereotype that only certain groups can have thoughts of suicide. Mm-hmm. In part, there are always going to be people in those groups who aren't having thoughts of suicide. But also, there are going to be people who are having thoughts of suicide who don't fit into those quote-unquote high-risk groups. For those who know their history, if you think about the the financial collapse that happened in the 1920s, and, you know, in a moment, there were people who lost their life fortunes. They, on the outside, may have seemed like they had it all. They had their finances. They had wealth. They had um, what they thought was stability. They had a job, and then it was gone, Mm -hmm. you know, and for some of those people, They suicided, not because of a mental illness, but because they didn't know what to do with that loss in that moment. Mm -hmm. 
So we got to be really careful about labeling and just stay open to wherever these invitations, as we would say in assist, come from that someone is, is inviting us in to talk about suicide. And that can look like anyone really at the end of the day, even kids. So this is another area that I train people with and do interventions with. And it's the age group between five to 14. Mm -hmm. And so kids is another population where it's not uncommon that adults think they lack the capacity to think of suiciding or to act on suiciding, or we see things happening and we write it off as being a rite of passage. You know, this is just something that happens in adolescence. They'll get over it. But for this child, it may actually be that they're experiencing thoughts of suicide and that they um, may act on those thoughts of suicide. Yeah. There's wow. So much, um, so much that you talked about. I would, I, I think we could dive into and create like so many episodes around. But one of the pieces that I really resonated with, because I, I talk about it all the time with the mindfulness training and everything I do, is I, I call it 10 is 10. And when you go to the hospital, if you have to go into eMERGE, I remember when I broke my ankle, I'm sitting there and they asked me, like on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being you can't take it anymore, and 1 mm-hmm. being like you don't feel anything, where are you right now? And at the time, I was like, I broke my ankle, but... I'm not trying to brag or anything, but looking around to what everyone else was going through. Yeah. Maybe I was at like a five and mm-hmm. it, there was some pain there, but I, I built some resilience over pain over the years and all this kind of stuff. But it brought to mind this woman I dated in college. She had never skimmed her knee before. She was 25 years old. She'd never skimmed her knee before. And she was riding her bike and uh, I was right behind her. We were riding our bikes together and she tripped wow. and skimmed her knee and it was like the end of the world. She was screaming. She was mm-hmm. crying. It was a huge deal. And it, like, it was traumatizing. The rest of the night, she was shaken up over it. And I grew up doing all kinds of yeah. you know, silly things with, uh, with bikes, with skateboards, rock climbing, all this kind of stuff. A skinny knee would be nothing to me. So my instinct was to downplay it. My instinct was to say, mm-hmm. what are you doing? Get up. It's just a skim knee. You're going to get many of those in your lifetime. Don't worry about it. But then I had to recognize right now she's at 10. And even though what's bringing her to 10 might not be what's going to bring me to 10, it's still going to manifest the same way. When someone's at 10, that's just still going to be the same stress response is happening within the body. It's still going to be the same Mm -hmm. kind of like within reason, of course, like everyone has different manifestations, but some of those stress hormones, the cortisol built up, the adrenaline spiking up and the way that impacts our uh, potential digestion and all like all of that is going to start to be triggered from skin knee from her, which is not going to be the same thing that's going to do it for me. And I've carried exactly. that forward into the mental health world and say like, okay, yeah, you're a teenager. You're going through your first breakup. Get over it. You're going to have many other relationships. You're going to have many of these kinds of things. And I feel as adults, we have a hard time because of all the resilience that we've built up, sometimes empathizing with what the youth are kind of going through. And we don't remember because, you know, our, our minds are really clever at hiding pain in, in the long term, but we don't remember how hard it was to have that first breakup or to have that best friend say that they don't want to be your friend anymore. Or, and these are just like very mm-hmm. uh, simple examples, but to be able to, like you said at the beginning of this, put yourself in the other person's shoes and really try to experience, okay, this is their reality right now. In their reality, this is a hard time. And again, how can I support them in that hard time that they're experiencing? Yeah. My, my grandfather, who I called my poppy, he wrote a book as well about his life story. And I remember when he was describing going through his first breakup and someone saying to him, it was just puppy love, like get over it kind of thing. And his response to that was, it might be puppy love, but it was real to the puppy. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. To me, this, this matters. And I really feel for people who are going through certain life experiences for the first time. Because part of my resiliency is to be able to look back on my life and see Mm -hmm. that although this feels like hell right now, and I don't, I have no idea how I'm going to get through it. I somehow got through it in the past. So I know it's possible. 
But when it's happening for the first time, you've got nothing to look back on. Mm -hmm. I really feel for people who are in that stage with any life circumstance where it's their first. They Mm -hmm. don't, they just don't have that history yet. But you're also talking about something really important called, there's a term, I'm not sure who it's coined by, but it's called psych ache. Mm -hmm. And it's where our minds are in so much pain but pain can be caused by lots of different things. It can be caused by scraping our knee. So we've got physical pain. It can be caused through emotional distress, through mental distress, spiritual distress. If people mm-hmm. feel like they've been cut off from their source, that can put them in tremendous pain. Mm-hmm. And what's really important for us to understand is what does this pain mean to this person? Cause you're so right that no two circumstances or to events that someone is going through is going to feel the same way to two different people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And when someone is in psychic, I think the other thing that's important for us to try to appreciate is we might be seeing that there's, there's pain coming from this area, but their brain is also telling them that like your brain is on fire right now. So it's not like they feel like they're stuck between a really horrible option and a much better option. They feel like they are stuck between two life-threatening choices mm-hmm. and they're trying to pick the one that they think is best for them. Yeah, it's really interesting. And we talked a little bit before we got into uh, recording the podcast too about how the connection between mental health and physical health and how, you know, we often put them in these specific categories and want to address one solely with these uh, set of tools and then one Mm -hmm. specifically with these set of tools. And yet they're so connected. The mind-body connection is so powerful in that way that will often, again, either be misdiagnosed or have certain aspects um, glazed over just because we don't understand that connection. I'm curious mm-hmm. if you have any examples of people that you've worked with of how this is manifesting in, with that like psychosomatic connection. Yeah, you know, um, I think the best resource on that is um, a medical doctor named Gabor Mate. You've probably mm-hmm. heard of him. Mm-hmm. He's a big deal in the mental health world, but he started out being in the you know, really about physical health, but he started to notice patterns between doing holistic histories with patients who were coming to see him, discovering that they had certain diseases and then having past histories of trauma that were undealt with. And then these, these histories manifesting themselves in certain diseases. Mm -hmm. And so this integration is something that I think in the, in the Western society, we really struggle to appreciate. Mm -hmm. And in some ways we're further along when it comes to the sense that we have this terminology of mental health. Some, some cultures don't even have that terminology. And so it's great that we do, but it's also really problematic that we keep it in a silo as though it's somehow separate from everything else that's happening in our systems. But all of these things are interconnected and intertwined. Just like if I have the flu, I'm not going to be as mentally alert as I would be if I didn't have the flu. I'm going to be feeling very pretty lousy. I'm going to be the way I have the flu, I'm going to be feeling pretty down on myself. Mm-hmm. And so it's another example of how something's happening to my physical well-being, but it's affecting my emotional well-being. Mm-hmm. Because I'm someone who lives with trauma, I, I quite often feel like I'm in emotional distress. And it absolutely impacts my physical well-being and my thought process. So all of these things affect one another. Mm-hmm. When I think back to earlier on in my life, a couple of decades ago, um, there was a time period where I felt completely cut off from, from a creator. And to me, I've never been more depressed in my entire life. So that was spiritual pain, but it manifested itself in my emotions, again, in my physical well-being. So all of these things we shouldn't really be talking about one without the other. I know that you've had a nutritionist on the show before, and I'm sure that they could speak to this a lot better than I, but 
what we put into our bodies too is going to manifest itself in our emotional well-being, in our physical well-being, our mental well-being. Mm-hmm. And of course, nutrition, how we're eating, what we're eating, all of these things can be a spiritual act as well. Yeah, it reminds me when I did my, because uh, I do, I, I prefer doing a lot of the like life coaching and mindfulness coaching. But in the realm of coaching, most of us start off with corporate coaching. And one of the mm-hmm. first things I remember being taught in the world of corporate coaching is you may be going in there and the client may be saying that they want help with their business and all that kind of stuff. But after the third coaching session, you're into life coaching because mm-hmm. if they're having confidence issues with their business, if they're having issues following three things through to the end and all that kind of stuff, it's not, it's never the case where they only do that in business, but they don't do that in life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, these separations. So it's true. Like when these things come up for us, it's affecting all these different aspects of our, of our lives. And when we talked about those, those invitations and those tells sometimes like there can be some of the tells too. What are you seeing with your coworkers? What's happening there? Um, I remember I did Mm -hmm. the, uh, I was asked to kind of sit in on the R2MR program with one of the local uh, police uh, departments since the road to mental readiness Mm -hmm. program. And they were running through some scenarios um, as to, okay, so you have a fellow police officer and you're noticing that they're starting to come in later each day, or even things like you notice that they're starting to hit the gym a whole lot more, or they're diving deeper into their work than you've ever seen them before. And again, we'll see that as like, yeah, go gym, you know, keep going kind of thing. But there's some changes happening in their work. What is causing that? What are the changes that's happening in their life to make that kind of happen here and it's such a big correlation we're a very we're very complex individuals these (laughs) we sure are (laughs) (laughs) i always encourage individuals who are experiencing thoughts of suicide to go visit their doctor and and of course there are many different types of practitioners that people could be tapping into so Mm -hmm. they're nutritionists they're naturopaths they're osteopaths but physicians um and professionals who can run blood work is really important because part of the issue might be that maybe someone's vitamin B levels are too low. Maybe their iron's too low. Mm -hmm. There was one girl who she struggled with thoughts of suicide for four years before her medical team finally discovered she has a rare liver condition, a side effect of which is suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. So, the more wraparound care that we can have and people who have different viewpoints looking in on our holistic well-being, the better or the higher the chances are that maybe we'll get to the root of what may be causing some of the distress that we're experiencing in our lives. That's a really powerful takeaway. I, I think of uh, in terms of mindfulness, that's a big piece of what I do. Mm-hmm. I've been getting a lot of people coming to me lately saying that my doctor or my therapist is recommending that I get into mindfulness and meditation. And what I've been finding is, is really interesting is the Western world has, and I'm generalizing for sure, but the Western world has this idea of what meditation looks like. And that is sitting cross-legged mm-hmm. in a quiet room. And we're told that we're supposed to just be able to shut off all of our thoughts and all this kind of stuff. And in my background, and I've taken courses in um, mindfulness-based stress reduction and all of this kind of stuff, what I've been taught is you need to kind of figure out what stage your students are kind of at with this. And we actually generally don't recommend that people who are in depression or who have suicidal thoughts to do conventional meditation. Mm -hmm. And that's simply because the mind can be so powerful that you put yourself in a situation, you say, okay, mind, I'm going to just like be open for you to do your thing. And then the ruminating thoughts actually come stronger and stronger. And then you leave your, you leave your meditation feeling more depressed, more anxious and, and having more of this taking place. And I find that a lot of what I'm doing with uh, working with people in that way is, is like you say, also putting people on to, different professionals, but recognizing that our self-care in this way can look so different. Telling people that like a run can be a fantastic meditation and, you know, like just having a mindful meal or a dance. I love 
suggesting dance parties. I think dance is such a great, um, <laughs> I'm great with you. <laughs> to just like put on your favorite song and dance. Like, yeah, but that's not meditation. It's like, it's totally, if you are aware, if you have the intention that I'm going to move my body to learn about myself and to learn about my uh, a world around me and be in the moment, it's totally a meditation. And again, there's mm -hmm. this idealization of this term enlightenment. And one of the definitions of enlightenment that we prefer using here is self-realization. And so if you can get to learn yourself, learn more about yourself mentally, physically, then you're just constantly getting closer to that state of enlightenment. And yet we're, mm -hmm. we're almost scared sometimes to dig a little bit deeper and like, well, maybe I don't want to get the blood work. Maybe I'm afraid of what that's going to show me, or maybe I don't want to talk to um, a therapist or a counselor or something because I'm afraid that they're going to judge me or something like that. But if they are able to help you get to know yourself a little bit better and meet that person inside a little bit more, like that's mm -hmm. such powerful, powerful work. It can be a beautiful yeah. experience. Absolutely. There's another workshop that I run called Compassion, Fatigue, and Vicarious Trauma. And we keep those two together because they often go hand in hand. And compassion fatigue intersects with thoughts of suicide often as well. Mm. Basically, what it is, is that when we've reached the end of ourselves, when we haven't been pouring into our well-being, there's nothing left to give anyone else. And then we can experience those thoughts of suicide or depression, or lots of other symptoms. And one of the things that we talk about in that workshop is how powerful mindfulness is. Donald Hebb said that the neurons that are what we fire together wires together. And so mm -hmm. one of the things that trauma does, as I'm sure you know, is it separates the left and right hemisphere in our brain. Mm -hmm. So part of how we heal trauma is through that practice of mindfulness. But I'm very, very careful with how I approach it. And the very last workshop that I ran, which now because of the pandemic is over Zoom, I launched an anonymous poll and I said, before we even get in to this topic of mindfulness, how many of you feel that when you've practiced mindfulness in the past, it's created distress? 90% mm -hmm. of people said yes. 90%. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's huge. And it's not to say like mindfulness is a very powerful and healing practice, it can also cause harm. And I'm bringing this up because what's important is to find what works for you. Totally. So we don't want to write mindfulness off because it created distress when we practiced it one way. Mm -hmm. It just means like you said, try something else. Maybe the dance party is what's going to work for you. Maybe doing Shinrin Yoku, taking a slow, mindful walk through a forest is what's going to do it for you. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, dipping your toes in freezing cold water to bring attention to that part of your body is what's going to do it for you. Or maybe that's going to cause you harm. You've just learned a little bit more about yourself. What else can you try? Totally. And this is so vital in suicide intervention as well, where when we are in the supportive role, we have to pay attention to what is working for that person. Maybe something worked for us and was helpful and healing for us, but for this person is going to cause harm. What's helpful and healing for them? So I'm constantly asking myself that question. And that, that again, keeps us in check, making sure that we're paying attention to this unique human being who's in front of us right now. Something I else that. I want to add on to what you said, because you also brought up the practice of self-care. And again, we can have some ideas as to what self-care looks like. And so part of what I do in that workshop, too, is to really challenge the concept of self-care, because often people think self-care is getting a massage or taking a bubble bath. But mm -hmm. self-care can be doing your taxes. It can be paying a bill. If the thought keeps entering your mind and it's adding stress to your body because you haven't dealt with it yet, mm -hmm. self-care can be paying the bill. Now you're not having to think about it anymore. It's done and you can breathe a little bit easier. So mm -hmm. self-care can look like all sorts of things and we need to work at expanding the idea as to what self-care is. And again, what do you as a unique human being need right now that would be life-giving to you? 
Mm-hmm, totally. I just uh, came off the back end of running a, a yoga and meditation retreat this past weekend. And being fall right now, when we're recording this, the whole theme was falling inward. And that was so much mm-hmm. of what we were talking about is falling inwards, looking inwards to what we need. And even the theme around fall being like, what's happening right now when you think of the squirrels going out and collecting nuts and all this kind of stuff, like what's mm-hmm. going to feed you to sustain you in those harder times, like when you know, food's harder to find in the winter. And again, what does self-care look like in all the different ways it's manifesting? Yeah, I'm really uh, happy to hear that you're putting mindfulness out there with that, with that intention of this may not work and this may not work. I, unfortunately, I find that there's a lot of that that's not taking place. And so mm-hmm. you'll get someone who maybe has like some deep trauma around breath work and around their lungs. And, you yeah. know, yoga philosophy, we even say that often, grief manifests in the lungs. And so you're getting them to sit there and have them, you know, take these deep breaths and make them think that they need to only focus on their breath. And that's how we feel better. And then they're just like, I'll I'll see this. I, before COVID and we were running all these workshops in person, I'll always have one person in tears, no matter what the meditation, Mm -hmm. even if you think it's the most gentle meditation and it's because we're so unique and to be accepting of that and say like, perfect. I love that you had a different experience here. Do you feel comfortable sharing that and opening a little bit more awareness around like, it's okay if this experience didn't work for me, for you learn from it. Don't necessarily force yourself into it again. Maybe you want to revisit it. Maybe you go and you do, so breath work wasn't working. Maybe we do a body scan or we do something else like that, a different form of single pointed focus or something. And then maybe you come back to it a little later, knowing that there's a possibility that it's not going to be working for you, but keeping an open and objective mind about it. And again, it's all about learning about yourself. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so many years now since I've had uh, the thoughts of suicide and stuff like that, but I'm mm-hmm. still unpacking it. I'm yeah. still looking at like, okay, where was that? What was I really, where was that? what they thought of me, why was that so impactful to me? Well, maybe it's because, mm. you know, I being a, the younger brother and I always, you know, start making correlations like, yeah, you know, my older brother, when he learned to juggle, I had to learn how to juggle better. And when he did this, I had to learn how to do this better. Where did that come from? And how did that eventually lead to me feeling like a failure when I wasn't the popular kid, when mm. I was last chosen on the sports teams? And yeah. like, it's, it's a, it's, it can be a scary path, But this far afterwards, I feel like there's so much excitement about that. I'm like, I'm finally starting to understand myself as a human being. And I've been doing meditation and mindfulness for over 20 years now. But to come Mm -hmm. to that point of like, I'm finally ready to admit that I'm just a student and this whole process of being a student of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure as you know, trauma gets stored in the body. So Mm -hmm. it's another reason why we need to be so mindful and another example of how these things intersect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. I'm just being mindful of of the time here. Again, I think we could definitely do like a multi-part series here moving forward. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) Um, But if anyone did want to uh, get a hold of you, find out more about what you do. What are some great resources to do that? Yeah, the best thing to do is to go onto my website, lifevoice.ca. On the homepage, you can also watch my TEDx talk, which is called Suicide is Preventable. And you can learn a little bit more about me and get in touch through, through that page. And I had a little bit of, uh, in the introduction here, about some resources if people were experiencing some triggers and stuff like that during this episode. Mm -hmm. But are there some other resources that you uh, maybe know offhand to kind of point people in the direction of? Yeah, so also on that website, you can find many lists of crisis supports that are specific to certain demographics, such as the LGBTQ plus community, the indigenous population, um, for students, for kids, for all sorts of, of uh, individuals and demographics. There's also a safety planning guide on there. Mm-hmm. But the thing I would encourage your listeners to think about too is get creative with what resources could look like for you and for others. Some listeners might be in uh, remote communities where they feel like, man, we don't have a lot of, of formal supports here. 
I'd like to let people know that even in urban centers where it seems like there's so many resources, that doesn't mean that they're easily accessible. Often there's long waiting lists or there might be funding for certain demographics and you may or may not fit into that. But a resource could be getting out on the land. It could be talking to an elder, talking to a friend, doing an activity that feels life-giving to you, that you enjoy, that mm -hmm. reminds you of who you quintessentially are. Mm -hmm. um, engage in something that's distracting if you need to, or take the time to focus on the issues that you need to. Again, it will look so individual, but don't be afraid to get creative with what support and resources can look like for you. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for and, having me. Yeah, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds great.